everyone. Welcome back to JCM Prepare the Way. My name is Carol, and I just want to thank you all for tuning back into our series on Israel, Israel's Anointing. Today is our final episode, episode 12, and we're going to be talking about Israel's future. You know, I really hope that this series has been helpful. We do not take any of this lightly. We pray through not only just this series, but any podcast we do, any teaching we do. And at the end of the day, our goal in all of it is to inspire you to get into God's word, to seek out truth for yourself. And we hope that this series has done no less. I also just want to take a moment before we begin and give a shout out to all of our podcast patrons and just say thank you. Thank you all for your support because it's because of your support that we can do what we do. So thank you so much. And if you would like to support our program and receive special content and other fun things throughout the year, just click on the link in the description of this episode. You know, I have gone back and forth on this final episode, trying to work out the best way to present our final installment in an easy and practical way while keeping it somewhat short, but it just isn't going to happen. It's too hard to try and explain Israel's future, let alone this whole series, their past, present, and future, in a short segment of a podcast, uh, especially this last podcast, this last episode, it would just leave too much out. So I'm not even going to try. I'm settling in for the longer episode today to close the series out and also closing it out in a different way than I anticipated it would look. But one thing that I've come to the conclusion of is that without the God of Israel, there would be no Israel because there is no humanly way to explain the birth, the survival, and the rebirth of the nation of Israel, except by God's sovereign hand. And that is going to be our theme throughout this whole episode. You know, on October 7th, Israel captured the attention of the world once again, when Jews from infants to the elderly were attacked without warning in some of the most vile, incomprehensible, barbaric ways, so evil in nature that it was compared to the Holocaust. Like the Nazis, the terrorist group Hamas was seriously committed to its principles of destroying the Jewish state and killing Jews. And when war broke out, people started scrambling, trying to find answers to such an atrocity. All of a sudden, Middle East experts were crawling out of the woodwork trying to skillfully explain the history of the Middle East conflict. Some presented historically accurate details, but others did not. Regardless, opinions were formed. People were looking for answers, and so they jumped on whatever argument appealed to their emotions and took a side. And sadly, but not so shockingly, Christians did as well. Social media, where most of the younger generation gets their news, became saturated with video clips, sound bites, headlines, and an insane amount of propaganda. Videos from prior wars, staged photos, and more. And rather than test the information before accepting it as truth, people latched onto things they heard or thought they saw, passed it on, and again, took a side. Trying to understand the situation, people were trying to catch up on thousands of years of history 
through whatever loophole could catch them up to speed the quickest. And for Christians, I think it was harder to discern truth through all of the information overload and public opinion. Deep down, we want to respond in a right way. But for decades, many of us have sat under people who teach not a word about Israel, except maybe a few assumptions about her fate at the end of the age. And so, without a full biblical picture of God's plan for the Jews or Israel, we're kind of at a loss as to how to respond. And that's what's missing in our understanding on this whole thing. The full counsel of God on the matter. We've heard from the experts. We've heard the opinions of friends and family. We've been down rabbit holes, right? Yet not many people are bringing up something very important. Where God fits into the whole equation. When listening to a highly educated, albeit secular Jewish person on the topic, they had the history of Israel since 1948 on point, but lost credibility with me when they couldn't answer simple questions regarding their own biblical history, including the significance of God's covenant that he made with them. Their defense became disjointed, and they began to sound like everyone else. And yet covenant, covenant is the key to this whole issue. Now, I don't expect everyone to agree with that, let alone understand that. But for God-fearing Christians, it's important that we understand it because it's the glue to the whole situation. Israel's unique, no doubt about it. They have been blessed because of their covenant with God, but he hasn't exactly let them off either. When looking at Israel's history, We need to have a general understanding of how it was framed the 2,000 years leading up to Christ and the 2,000 years since his death and resurrection leading up to present day. In one of our first episodes, we shared how Genesis chapters 1 to 11 cover approximately 2,000 years of history, history that is mainly about mankind, creation, Cain and Abel, the flood, right? But after Genesis 11 is when Israel's story begins. And so we begin to zoom down to around the year 2000 BC and focus in on one particular family, the family of Abraham. So from a timing perspective right now, 2024, we are around 2000 years after Christ, while the history of Israel began 2000 years before Christ. So we're talking about 4000 years of history for the Jewish people. And when looking at their history, You can actually divide those first 2,000 years up into four equal parts of distinct periods of 500 years and discover that in each of these periods, the leadership of Israel changed. In the first 500 years, the first period, they were led by patriarchs, forefathers, from Abraham to Joseph. Following the patriarchs, the second period or next 500 years, they were led by prophets, Moses to Samuel. In the third period, they were led by princes, kings, and royalty, from Saul to Zedekiah. And in the final period, the last 500 years before Christ, they were led by priests, from Joshua, the Joshua who came with Zerubbabel from the exile, right through to Caiaphas during the days of Jesus. So the leadership changed from patriarchs to prophets to princes to priests. Now, it doesn't mean that there were not prophets at other times, such as before and after the exile, or that there weren't priests at other times. 
but the leadership of the nation passed from one group to the other until Jesus came, who was prophet, priest, and king all rolled into one. By this time, Israel had suffered many things and had been without any type of king for over 500 years. They were now living under the Roman Empire during the times of Christ. Many Jews in Israel professed their faith in Yeshua, Jesus, as their Messiah, as the prophets had foretold was coming, but there were also many Jews who did not. But the Jews who did believe, they took the gospel far and wide. And here we are today. So that was the first 2,000 years. The next 2,000 years after Christ looked much different for Israel, for the land was conquered over and over again, being ruled over and trampled by Gentile nations. The Roman Empire was the ruling empire during the time of Christ, and in 70 AD, a few decades after his death and resurrection, they destroyed the Holy Temple in Jerusalem. Some Jews had already fled the land, but others were taken away and enslaved. A little later, Roman Emperor Hadrian renamed the land of Israel to Syria-Palestina, Palestine, and Jerusalem was renamed Aelia Capitolina in an effort to transform Jerusalem into a Roman metropolis. From that point on, Israel was called Palestine, with the actual Hebrew word meaning Pelesheth Philistia, land of the Philistines, which was one of Israel's greatest enemies. So if someone tries to tell you that Jesus was Palestinian, they're not telling you the truth, since the name Palestine wasn't established until decades after his death and resurrection. Jesus was a Jew from Israel. By the end of the first century, Jews were no longer living in Israel, though. They had moved or were enslaved, as I said, in all the surrounding nations. The land of Israel no longer had a temple nor a people. After the, Romans came the, after the Romans came the Byzantines until around 638. After the Byzantine Empire came the first Muslim or Arab period. Remember, Islam did not exist until the early 7th century. But this was the time period when the Dome of the Rock was built. They ruled until 1099. Then came the Crusaders until 1187, then the Mamluks, then the Ottomans, and eventually the British took control from 1917 until 1948. So for 2,000 years, Israel and the holy city of Jerusalem was trampled underfoot, as the Bible puts it, by Gentiles, one empire after another. And just like with Babylonians and Greeks, God watched every empire come and go until it was time to do something that would rock the world. In a miraculous series of events, after 2,000 years, Israel, the land, was reestablished as a Jewish state, and the Jewish people, who had been scattered around the world, began to return home. For 2,000 years, they didn't have their own land like other people in other countries, nor their own currency, nor their own army, nor their own anything. No other nation in existence has experienced anything close to anything like that in all of history. I challenge you to name one. And yet here they were, 
2,000 years later returning to their homeland and quickly reinstating their native language, but also their currency, their holy Sabbaths, their worship, their kosher food. It's unheard of. It would be like those of us who have grown up in America being conquered, our churches destroyed, and all of us being scattered about the world and trying to assimilate into other cultures, forever the minority. And then having children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and generation after generation passing, and then returning to America 2,000 years later and immediately restoring our native language, and our worship. It's unheard of. It's almost virtually impossible. But for Israel, it was an act of God, no matter how you look at it, because they should have never, ever gotten back into their land under those circumstances. They never stopped longing for it. In fact, their greeting to each other was always, next year in Jerusalem. But they should have never gotten back here. I mean, the Holocaust alone wiped out a third of them, six million, including a million and a half children. I mean, you may try your best to explain their history in human or geopolitical terms or any political terms, and you can't do it. No one can. Not even the secular Jew I was listening to, even they couldn't explain their survival. It's the supernatural hand of God. And when they became a state, they were initially offered a two-state solution with a small population of existing Arabs that lived there. But the Arab world rejected it. And the very next day after being declared a state, the tiny state of Israel was attacked by surrounding Arab nations and went to war. And somehow, miraculously, survived. I have sat through many discussions with other Christians over the years, listening to various opinions about Israel. And you typically find that people land one of two places. Some Christians view the modern state of Israel as a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and believe that support for Israel is a matter of faith. While on the other hand, there are those who are more critical of Israel's policies towards the Palestinian people, viewing Israel through a lens of politics or human rights. But one thing is certain, without the God of Israel, there would be no Israel. It's as simple as that. For starters, as a nation, there is no human way to explain how they came to be, except by the hand of God. A nation formed out of one family in the womb of Egypt. And then there is no human way they could have survived Egypt, or even the exodus out of there, with roughly two million people, with carts and cattle and children, being chased by a powerful army through the desert, and then finding themselves stuck at the Red Sea, only to have a supernatural event occur to help them escape. An event that has been commemorated every year at Passover for the last four years thousand years. They only survived by the hand of God. And then afterwards, they're wandering in the desert for 40 years. A desert the Egyptian army of the 1973 Yom Kippur War couldn't survive for three days. 
and were graciously sent back to Egypt by the Israel army. And yet the Israelites survived in the same region for 40 years, and their sandals didn't even wear out. That is only by the hand of God. And there is no way to explain how while in the desert, they created the artistry in detail of the tabernacle and learned to worship when they had been doing nothing but making bricks for the last 400 years. Only by God's Spirit were they enabled to do that. A whole generation died in that desert, leaving a small remnant to enter the Promised Land. There is no human way upon entering the Promised Land that these former slaves could have overcome and conquered the fortified cities that were there with giants, except by the hand of God. There is no physical human way that they could have defeated some of the armies they defeated, such as the Gideon story, except by the hand of God. And there is no way they could have survived the exile in Babylon except by God's hand, or saving the entire Jewish population from annihilation, but by raising up a young Jewish girl in Persia to be queen. There is no human way to explain these things, except that God was watching over them. And there is no possible way to explain the Jews' survival since being out of their land for 2,000 years. God and his sovereignty kept them as a people. And that is very hard for many of us to wrap our head around. Christians, who over the centuries should have acted more like brothers, instead rose up against the Jewish people to wipe them out. From the very beginning, tensions were building between Gentile converts and Jewish believers in Jesus in the early centuries and grew worse after the establishment of the organized church under Rome, who, through various creeds, worked to remove the Jews' Jewish identity and Hebraic roots, even though they were followers of Christ. So they banned the Sabbath and then ordained Sunday as the day of worship. Sunday the day of the sun, the sun god, that is, that they worshipped. The feast of Passover was also forbidden, replaced by Easter, a celebration now based off the spring solstice, not on the actual day Jesus died, which was Passover, as per God's word, and Easter being named after fertility goddess Ishtar, which is why we have eggs and bunnies and everything else. So the Passover lamb became the Easter ham. After the papacy of Pope Gregory I, the expulsion of Jews was beginning to spread in Europe. There was also the expulsion of Jews in England in 1210, also in France under King Dagobert. There was also Catherine the Great of Russia, who had Jews largely banned from living anywhere inside of Russia. Converts to Christianity were tolerated, But Jews who refused to abandon their faith were generally barred from living in the interior of the country. And her mother-in-law, Elizabeth, in 1742, she signed an order of expulsion, making it illegal for any Jew to remain in Russia. So they were going from bad to worse. Not only under the church was their identity being removed, but now they couldn't even find a place to call home in any of these countries. With Elizabeth in Russia, that radical law that she created was maintained even as Russia expanded westward, acquiring territories that were home to Jewish communities. 
There's also the Inquisition of 1492, when Spain, under the rulership of King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella I of Castile, announced that practicing Jews living in Spain had to make a decision, convert to Catholicism or leave. Many Jews converted and stayed, but continued to keep their faith in secret. However, they were exposed by neighbors. And when they were exposed, they were tortured to admit their sin and later burned, all of which was all of which was ordered by the Catholic Church. The Inquisition pursued its mandate not just in Spain, but Portugal and across the Spanish colonies. It pushed aggressively to repress what the monarchy saw as heresy. And yet God, at the very same time in 1492, all of a sudden opened up America. America was discovered and many Jews found a safe new place to call home. And so it's believed today that some 200 million people may be a descendant of the Jewish, Spanish, and Portuguese communities that were forced to convert to Christianity. The Jews of Western Europe also suffered, not just through those things, but during the Crusades. Although the Muslims were the targets in the attempted recapture of the holy places in Israel, then called Palestine, the pillage and slaughter committed by Christian mobs against Jews on the way, well, they linger long in Jewish memory. Even Luther, who Protestant Christians admire greatly, his last sermon was an anti-Semitic sermon on the Jews. A few days later, he died. He was not always anti-Semitic, but he came to hate Jews after they refused to convert en masse to Christianity. He even wrote a book called The Jews and Their Lies. The Nazis made use of the anti-Semitic words of Martin Luther, using his writings to support their cause. Some defend Luther by saying we need to understand that his writings were in the spirit of his time. But does that really matter when people like Hitler use his writings to support what they're doing against the Jews? The theology of another major church reformer, John Calvin, did not differ much from Luther's anti-Jewishness. He considered that since the Christian church had come into existence, the Jewish people had become an anachronism, other than as potential Christians. His rejection of them went even further. He called them mad dogs, beasts, and animals. What about Ulrich Zwingli also adhered to the official church theology on Judaism? He interpreted the Jews' dispersion all over the world as divine punishment for Jesus' crucifixion. And these teachings permeated the global church. And these beliefs, they're still embraced and believed by many Christians today. What about the book published by the Russian secret police, The Protocols of the Elders of Zion? It's still in circulation and has done more damage to the Jews than you can imagine. What about the word Zion? It means one thing in the Bible and another thing in today's culture, even used as a dirty word. Jews have long memories, which is why many of them may come across fearful of strangers, especially Christians. Many may come across as cold, callous, arrogant even. If this is how you were treated by Christians over the years, how would you act? 
They were even blamed for the Black Death of Europe. I mean, come on. And since October 7th, the deafening silence in the church only confirms to a Jew that we are not their friend. Germany was populated with more Jews than any country in Western Europe when Hitler came to power, and many Christians, unfortunately, turned their back on him, ratting them out and staying silent as they were being brutally massacred. They chose to stay safe within the safe confines of a government-controlled church rather than take a stand with a remnant of other believers who were trying to help them. So no, there is no humanly way to explain Israel and their survival these last 4,000 years except by the hand of God. There is no possible way to explain the rebirth of the nation of Israel and the reclaiming of Jerusalem after the Six-Day War of 1967, restoring their capital city back to them, which needed to be done in order to fulfill Jesus' words in Luke 21. You can make worldly excuses for this all day long, arguing that it was powerful people, not God, that reestablished Israel for their own selfish purposes. But does it even matter? God used corrupt and evil people all the time to accomplish his purposes. Babylonian King Nebuchadnezzar was his instrument of judgment for disobedient Judah, which sent them into exile in Babylon. Or how about Acts chapter 4, verses 27 to 28, where it says that Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever God's hand and purpose determined beforehand against his son. God planned for Herod and Pontius Pilate. We're all sitting here wringing our hands and wiping our brows, sweating out the geopolitical storm we're in, and quickly taking our eyes off of God. Like Herod, not every Jew is a true Jew after God's heart. Some will be of the synagogue of Satan and work evil. Just as not everyone who calls themselves a Christian is truly a Christ follower, As Paul puts it in Philippians 2.21, they seek their own, not the things of Christ. So we have to be discerning, but we can't be ignorant either. At some point, people are going to need to take a good long look at Israel and determine for themselves that divine intervention is playing a role in their existence. And many will struggle with that at the end of the age, if we're around, when God himself picks a fight with the nations that harmed the apple of his eye, defending Israel himself. It will look like chaos and carnage to the world, but it will be a fulfillment of God's word. And so you may be sitting there saying to yourself, but why? What makes Israel so special? Well, we've been going through that this whole series. God didn't choose Israel because they were a great people or something special. They became special because he chose them. Just like Christians. We're nothing apart from Christ. But in him, we are the salt and light of the earth. When God made a covenant with Abraham, there was nothing higher than himself to swear by. So he swore by himself. And it's for that very reason that he will not break covenant, ever. Otherwise, he goes against his own self, his own nature, his own word, which he will not do. When it comes to Israel, he preserves them for his namesake, not because of anything they're doing to please him, 
but because of his name. He repeats that over and over in different passages. I do this for my namesake. Just as we are kept in Christ by the power that is at work towards us, so too are they kept by God. So God hasn't let them go, but he hasn't let them off either. There are tremendous blessings he is working out, but there has also been and will continue to be suffering. For they have suffered more than any nation in the entire world. No people have suffered more, starting with the slaughter of infant boys in Egypt, then the slaughter of boys two years and younger in Bethlehem, right up to today. Read your Old Testament. They suffered over and over and over again. Natural disasters, plagues, earthquakes. They've suffered from invasion over and over. The book of Judges is about nothing else. So God may have preserved them, but he hasn't always protected them either. And that is as much as a mystery to them as it is to anybody else. In fact, survivors of the Holocaust would say, where was God when we needed him? He allowed six million to suffer. And we must be honest with these facts. We must face the facts of their history, which on one hand speak of their survival, which was God's doing, but on the other hand, the suffering, which he has allowed them to go through. He has not dealt with any other nation in this way except them. Which is why in many cases when you speak to a Jew today, they tell you they only want to be left alone in peace. When we were in Israel, when war broke out on October 7th, an older Jewish woman grabbed my hand and looked at me with tears in her eyes and said, why won't they leave us alone? That's all they want. They only want to have their own land and live in security, and yet they can't achieve it. And so to this very day, they are suffering. But God will not let them go. You see, at Sinai, God married his people. Exodus 19 verses 4 through 7 takes you through the vow. Just like a wedding ceremony where vows are recited and the couple says, I will, I will. That's what happened with God and Israel. God presented his vow to them and both sides said, I will. Peter repeats that vow in 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10 as a reminder of who we're called to be. This is why God says in the scriptures, I am married to Israel, or I am her husband. And also why he says, I hate divorce. No matter how angry they make him, he will not divorce them. He asked them freely and voluntarily of their own choice. But you must also make a promise to me to live righteously. And they agreed. God, from the very beginning, wanted a righteous world. A world that was right and good and nothing wrong. That was the world of Genesis 1. He gave the first human beings the same choice with the tree of life. Live my way and you'll be blessed. Refuse to live my way and you'll be cursed. They chose and were cursed. And creation has been living under that curse ever since. Israel makes choices that results in either blessings 
or curses, and then they live under those choices. And God gives you and me the same freedom through his son. We choose Christ, but now we have to follow him. Deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow me. Live according to my teachings, my ways, my Torah. Torah means instruction, and Jesus is the fullness of the Torah. Writing his word upon our hearts the more we study and apply ourselves to learning. So then, by his spirit living within us, we can obey him. Faith is the key for everyone in both the Old and New Testament, but obedience is impossible without the help of the Spirit. Thy will be done. And so many of us, like Israel, profess faith, but are not following them. And we remain in a valley of decision between His will and our own. You see, <laughs> God got his people right to the borders of the promised land. And in Deuteronomy 27 and 28, he gave them a choice. The conditions they needed for blessing and the conditions of living wrong that would result in cursing. And he makes his point clear by using the topography of the land for a dramatic visual effect. He took them to two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, which had a valley between them. The children of Israel were to go into the valley, and then people from each tribe were chosen and appointed to shout from one mountain to the other over the valley where the people stood. Mount Gerizim, which is typically covered in vegetation, was where blessings were pronounced, while Mount Ebal, which is normally a barren peak, was where curses were pronounced, giving the people a vivid picture of living in the valley of decision. Well, here we are, thousands of years later. And many Jews are still there. Many Christians are still there. Although many Jews have come to faith in Messiah, but there are many who have not yet, and they are still in that valley of decision. And like I said, many of you are still there, professing your faith, but your life is not reflecting that change. And so, while there are still many Jews in this valley of decision, we as believers must be careful not to grow haughty towards them, not to think we are better than them, not to think we've replaced them in God's eyes. But I'm afraid that's what we've done. You see, what you and I come to believe to be true about Israel and her future comes from what we've been taught. And you're either being taught by the Holy Scriptures or you're being taught by people. And in the church in particular, there are three positions that the church takes regarding Israel that you really need to understand because they're probably being taught to you and me. So I want to go through these three just so that you have an understanding and then you can make your own calculated decision on Israel as you see fit. The first position the church takes is where one group of Bible interpreters say that all the promises written by prophets were conditional, meaning they were conditional on Israel being faithful and obedient to God. And since they weren't, all the predictions have been canceled. 
If Israel had cooperated with God and they didn't, in particular refusing Jesus as their Messiah, the Jews have essentially now forfeited their entire future, and none of these predictions will ever happen. That's one reason why some preachers never talk about Israel or its future. The second approach is that the promises the the prophets made were unconditional. And so it's not a case of if they will happen, but when. God said, this is what I intend to do and I will do it. But within this group are two subgroups of people who differ on how that will happen. The first subgroup would be associated with supersessionism or what people call replacement theology. The belief that the church replaced or superseded Israel in God's plan for humanity. Most often, it is linked with the destruction of Israel in 70 AD, and its other origins trace back to the early church theologians who taught that God's old covenant with Israel was fulfilled and thus replaced by the new covenant in Christ. Perhaps this is the view you take. And so what they say is that predictions about Israel will happen, but that they are already happening now to the church being fulfilled in a symbolic or spiritual way, not a literal way. So if you sit under someone who holds this theology, they may teach Revelation, for example, or other prophetic scriptures from a spiritual or symbolic position. It's a type of thinking that separates physical and spiritual, and it's actually a thinking that is not rooted in Hebraic thinking, but in Greek thinking and philosophy because God rarely separates physical from spiritual. So it's just something for you to take note of and further look into yourself. Curiously enough, people who hold to this viewpoint apply all of the predictions of blessing to the church, but all the prophetic predictions of the unfulfilled curses are quietly dismissed. Again, it's just something to ponder. Either way, this would probably be the majority view in most churches that the church is the new Israel, spiritual Israel. May I just point out that the name Israel occurs 74 times in the New Testament, but not once is it clearly, clearly stated as being applied to the church. It's only inferred that by Bible teachers, but it's never clearly stated. In 73 of those, it's clearly applied to the Jewish people. There's only one verse that could be a little ambiguous, and that's not enough to apply the name Israel to the church. But that's the second view, that the predictions made to Israel are now being fulfilled in the church, but in a spiritual way, and therefore, those predictions are fulfilled by Christ's first coming. The third and last view is that these predictions were unconditional and that they will happen only literally and physically to Israel as God said they would. And so, therefore, most of them are still future. The phrase from Romans 11 that says, Then all Israel shall be saved, is usually taken by the aforementioned group as the church will be complete. But in this third view, it's that Israel will be saved. And therefore, the fulfillment of these predictions tend to focus on the second coming of Christ rather than the first coming of Christ. Again, you will have to work your own way through the Bible and come to your own conclusions and convictions about these things. But it's important that you know them. So if you're out there asking, why is my pastor or teacher not teaching about Israel? 
one of these reasons might be why. And I understand the wrestling. You know, it's easy to support the position of the church replacing Israel when Israel did not exist for 2,000 years, right? And then organized religion, they needed to figure out how to apply unfulfilled prophetic scriptures somehow. And so they applied them to themselves. But when Israel was granted statehood and Jews began to return, as according to scripture, it flipped this end-time thinking on its head. So now, many Christians are starting to question and wrestle through what they've believed up to this point, because prophecy is unfolding before their very eyes. And so again, I repeat, as a nation, there is no human way to explain how Israel and the Jewish people came to be and then survived all these years, surviving all these 2,000 years, especially under the hands of Christians. They are a people restored back to the very place God promised to give his friend Abraham through a perpetual covenant 4,000 years ago. And since returning to the land, and then 20 years later recapturing Jerusalem, several key prophetic fulfillments have taken place. First, hundreds of thousands of Jewish people have opened their hearts to believe that Yeshua, Jesus, is indeed the Messiah of Israel, just as Isaiah, Hosea, Ezekiel, and even Paul predicts in Romans chapter 11. Not since the first century, when the original church was totally Jewish, have so many Jewish people begun to believe that Jesus is the long-awaited, foretold Messiah of Israel. And if you have ever encountered any of these people, these Messianic Jews, which I have, you quickly learn how much deeper they know the Bible. Biblical truth and revelation that in many cases is much richer than what we are generally being taught on Sunday mornings. And that's not meant as an insult, but having Hebrew as their native language gives them an, a depth of understanding into biblical texts that we oftentimes miss, even in the New Testament, since most of the New Testament actually references the Old. The second thing is the impact of this expansion of faith in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, how it's reaching around the world, shaking the Middle Eastern nations that have long known nothing of this world redeemer. Descendants from Abraham, Isaac, and Ishmael coming back together through faith in Christ. As we've mentioned in earlier episodes, some of these encounters with Christ are supernatural in nature. There is no human explanation except the hand of God waking up his family to the knowledge of his son, regardless of what country they live in. The testimony of the surrounding nations, especially those in closest proximity to Israel, will be one of the primary catalysts quickening the revelation that Jesus is, in fact, her Messiah. And when they awaken to this truth, they testify of the profound love they immediately have for Israel. And so it stands to reason that the Middle East will take center stage during the events leading up to Christ's second coming— just as it states it will in Scripture. And lastly, the reawakening and reconnecting of the church throughout the world to her Jewish roots, which were so horrifically ripped from her in the beginning of the third century and stayed that way until recently. 
Christians today are becoming more aware of their Hebraic Jewish heritage as opposed to a Greek and Roman one. It's a heritage rooted in Christ Jesus, a Jew, and through him, now grafted into the family of Israel, the family of God, his family story, and that excites many believers. Agree or disagree to any of this. These things are physically happening, not spiritually like some pastors like to tell us, but physically. And you cannot humanly explain this except by the hand of God. The very fact that the name Israel is back on the world map today and that physical people, Jews, make up the nation of Israel is proof that God keeps his promises. Since Israel became a state in 1948, they have been the focus of the attention of the world because their presence created a dramatic shift among the surrounding nations and their allies. Have you ever asked yourself, why do world leaders and people in general get triggered when Israel's discussed? Or why does the United Nations devote over 30% of its time to fighting against Israel, a nation of only roughly 9 million people, passing more resolutions critical of Israel than any other nation combined in 2022. They have a lopsided focus on the Jewish state. Since 2015, the General Assembly has adopted 140 resolutions criticizing Israel, mainly over its mistreatment of the Palestinians and its relationships with neighboring countries and other alleged wrongdoings. While over the same period, it's passed only 68 resolutions against all the other countries. So let me see. Not to be a little sarcastic, but maybe I will for just a moment. Where is the outrage for the one million Muslim Uyghurs that are held in concentration camps in China right now for a decade, with things being done to them you can't even imagine? Or the outrage over the Muslim persecution of hundreds of thousands of Pakistani Afghans being kicked out of Pakistan? Or the Muslim persecution of the Armenians, one of the oldest Christian groups in the Middle East, who are being forced out of their land so that Muslims can take it. Who's occupying who? Where's the church on this issue when it's our own brethren being persecuted? Or what about the Arab massacre in Sudan? Where's the outcry at the UN or in the media? Or is it only when there are Jews involved that things matter? Or what about this? A bit unrelated, but no less important. The death of 73 million people worldwide in 2023 through abortion alone. Where's our voice for those innocent lives? Maybe our anger and bias we feel towards Israel right now is a bit misdirected or ill-informed. So let's face it. The church hasn't been Israel's friend at key times in history. And no matter what theology we use or end-time eschatology we hold to, no one can deny the fact that the Jews physically living in the state of Israel today are undeniable proof that God is at work within his covenant with Abraham, no one. History has shown that it is only by his hand alone, not ours, that they are still here today. When it comes to covenant, which will be a separate podcast soon apart from this series, um, I'd like to read you some verses about the new covenant, or like I call it, the renewed covenant, because that's what it should say. It's found in the book of the prophet Jeremiah, and I just want to read this to you because Jeremiah 
he gives us a very detailed picture of what was going to happen to the Jewish people when God punished them for their disobedience. But then later in the book, Jeremiah gives a lovely optimism about the future restoration of God's people. And I'd like to read to you a portion of that, which I know cuts into the time we have for this episode, but it's important. Because since it's a scripture we as Christians quote when we refer to the covenant we have in Christ, it's important we read it in its entirety. So I'm going to read Jeremiah 31, 31 to 40. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Most Christians and Christian teachers stop here, but let's continue. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day, the ordinances of the moon and the stars for a light by night, who disturbs the sea and its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, Then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. If the heaven above can be measured, and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, I will also cast off the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says the Lord. The seed of Israel will not be cast off, nor will Israel cease from being a nation, friends, because... These ordinances, the sun, the moon, the stars, the sea, its waves, they're all still there. And last I checked, no one has measured the foundations of the earth, nor has anyone been able to measure heaven. And this prophecy, it's not fully fulfilled yet. This renewed covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, so the twelve tribes of Israel, the descendants of the patriarchs from whom our Lord Jesus comes, not everyone has God's law written on their hearts yet, or in their minds yet, or is teaching their neighbor yet from the least to the greatest. It has not reached this full fulfillment yet. But through Christ, a descendant of the patriarchs and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, which is shed abroad in our hearts, who is at work sanctifying and shaping true believers, it's begun. In fact, Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Every person who makes Jesus Lord of their life is grafted supernaturally into God's family which includes the house of Israel and the house of Judah, creating a beautiful, eternal family portrait. 
a covenant that will never cease, built on the foundation of the patriarchs and later the apostles, all Jews, with Christ himself, now their brother, as the chief cornerstone of the whole building, with all of us being built up together into a spiritual house, First Peter. Jew and Gentile, one new man, but part of the same family. So it's not complete yet. I encourage you to read Romans chapters 9 to 11. In churches, we typically read Romans 1 to 8 and skip over to 12 to 16. But Romans chapter 9 covers Israel's past, chapter 10 covers the present, and 11 covers their future. Romans chapter 11 in particular uses imagery of an olive tree to describe the Jew and Gentile relationship. That although some branches were broken off through unbelief, Jewish unbelief, they were broken off so that we could be grafted into God's family. But it's only for a time. And when the fullness of the Gentiles have come in, then God will get back to work in the unbelieving branches, the unbelieving Jews, to graft them back in again and save Israel. And Paul warns believers in this chapter, don't think you are the root of that tree. You're not. The root supports you. The root of the patriarchs, the root of Israel, supports us. So don't grow haughty against the Jews or against Israel, or God will cut you off, Paul says. Read it. It's a powerful chapter, rarely taught in church. And instead, you know, we've got ancient church fathers that have taught that the root is Christ, and that's what's been passed down to us today. But I encourage you, dig into that a bit more, and you'll see the beauty of the full picture the full counsel of God as he is working out his covenant to fulfill what he promised Abraham, descendants more numerous than the stars in the sky. Because God, he identified himself with a father, a son, and a grandson and made a covenant with them. That's the only explanation you can give for why we are all here. If that wasn't important, then Jesus would have no reason to trace his lineage in Matthew chapter 1 or Luke chapter 3 back to Abraham. So for those that don't believe in God, the God of the Bible, or for Christians who are finding themselves positioned against the Jews, we must challenge ourselves and challenge them to find another explanation for Israel's survival if they can. Their survival means they have a future. But their suffering is not over. There is more suffering to come, according to the prophets, who certainly make clear that specific promises of the restoration of Israel will take place in two phases, first to their land and then to their God. The land part is happening, even if you don't agree on the methods. Restoration to their God, their Messiah, will be the next big event for them. So we must pray for them. Before his crucifixion, Jesus declared to the people in Israel, You shall not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Matthew twenty-three thirty-nine. Here he is, quoting a prophetic psalm of David, Psalm 118, which he had referenced a few days earlier when he entered Jerusalem, confronting the religious leaders in Matthew 21. 
There, Jesus referred to himself as the chief cornerstone, the foundation of all things, though the builders rejected it. The Lord will reveal something marvelous. The psalmist declares that the people would bless this one who comes in the name of the Lord from the house of the Lord. In essence, using the language of the psalmist, Jesus is saying three things here. One, he is coming back. Two, he is returning to Jerusalem. And three, the Jewish people in Jerusalem will recognize him as their Messiah. Baruch haba b'shem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And these three things are all prerequisites for his return. And they have not happened yet. And then there's Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 3. He's speaking to Jews in Jerusalem about the Lord's return and how the promises God gave the prophets concerning Israel must be fulfilled concerning their restoration. He says this, Now, fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold to all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. And here it is. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord and that he may send the Messiah who has been appointed for you, even Jesus. Heaven must receive him until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised long ago through his holy prophets. He's talking about Christ's return, not his first coming. Jesus is in heaven until the time comes for God to restore everything as he promised. And so Peter is encouraging the Jews to repent and turn to God so that their sins may be wiped out and the time of refreshing may come from the Lord so that then he may send the Messiah. This is what we have to pay attention to. Because one such prophetic word that must take place physically, not spiritually, is Zechariah chapters 12 to 14. I encourage you to read them. God declares that he will pour on the house of David and all of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. When they see their Messiah, they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In that day, there shall be great mourning in Jerusalem. Zechariah 12, 10 to 11. This has not occurred yet. The Jews have not looked upon the one whom they pierced yet and mourned. Because prior to this moment, Jerusalem will become a cup of drunkenness to the surrounding nations, the Arabs. It will be a heavy stone, he says, and they will lay siege against it. The hatred against Israel will not end with this present war. It will continue until the return of the Lord and probably get much worse. But at the same time, he will also be working on the people there to show himself strong on their behalf, supernaturally intervene, intervening so that they testify to his glorious power when he comes against the nations of the world. And when they recognize their Messiah who will be their defense, they will look upon him. It's just so beautiful. They will look upon him with tremendous weeping and mourning. 
It will be national repentance, national mourning, and he will grant them national forgiveness because it will be the fulfillment of Yom Kippur. Just as Jesus was the fulfillment of Passover, being the Passover lamb mentioned in the feast in Leviticus 23, so too will he be the fulfillment of the feast of Yom Kippur from the same chapter in Leviticus, only to the Jewish people. To date, this event has not occurred either. Not even in the first century when so many Bible teachers say everything was fulfilled. So this is no way a promise for the church because it speaks of the Jews in Israel and the return of the Lord. So friends, although this message was different than what I anticipated it would be, I pray it gives you things to consider. Be careful not to get caught up into the resurgent anti-Semitism, ha- ha- anti-Semitism excuse me, happening worldwide. Be quick to get into your Bible instead and start studying Hosea and Isaiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah and Romans chapters 9 to 11 and Revelation and Daniel and all of it. Trust the Bible more than man. Trust the Bible, not me. I'm just trying to help point the way as we are all still learning as students of his word. Test everyone you sit under. We will not understand everything. We will grieve many injustices in this latest war in the Middle East and all wars after that until Christ comes to make everything right. And war is ugly. Unholy, unrighteous men and women fuel hatred and lies through political engines and media and entertainment and public figures and propaganda. Satan knows his time is short. And he is working hard to deceive the masses and turn them away from the truth. Pray, as Jesus taught in Matthew 24, not to be deceived. Ask him for wisdom and discernment during this time. Watch and pray, for the days are evil. But know this, only one person can fix this world. It's our Savior, Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And upon his return, he will make right every wrong. He is the prophet, the priest, and the king fulfilled. He is the king over the nations of the earth, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the image of the invisible God, the fullness of the Godhead bodily, the rider on the white horse whose name is faithful and true, who has preeminence over all, fulfilling all in all as head of his body, and who is forever called the lion of the tribe of Judah and the root and offspring of David, forever tying himself to the Jewish people, meaning he is forever identified with the family of David, the tribe of Judah, and the people of Israel. So no, even if every person on the world forsakes them, he won't. There is no other explanation for their birth, their survival, and their rebirth, except from God himself. I leave you with this passage from Isaiah 62, which I encourage you to read. 
For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest. Until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a lamp that burns. The Gentiles shall see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You shall be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord will name. You shall also be a crown of glory in the hand of the Lord and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no longer be termed forsaken, nor shall your land any more be termed desolate, but you shall be called Hebzbubah and your land Beulah. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. I have set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They shall never hold their peace day or night. You who make mention of the Lord, do not keep silent, and give him no rest till he establishes until he makes Jerusalem a praise in all the earth. God bless you all today.